0: Welcome back to The Good Room, where we have interdisciplinary conversations about what makes a room good. I'm Tully Mahoney, and today we're talking about a good emergency room with Akshay Sangoli, a lead healthcare planner at PAGE, and Hilary Bales, a senior healthcare planner who has worked on a range of behavioral health facilities. To start our discussion, I was thinking that we could start it where a patient might start their journey in an emergency room. So talking about that entry sequence and how the design of that, how it can meet the needs of the flow of patients coming in
1: and the arrival isn't once you enter the door of the facility the arrival is when you're driving up to the facility right and let's understand who this patient is the patient and the family is stressed they are looking for by definition emergent care so you can't drive up to a campus with 10 entrances and eight buildings and then try to figure out where i'm going so wayfinding and the arrival sequence has to be thought through and there needs to be clarity in terms of, okay, well, as I'm driving up to the campus, where am I either driving up myself or driving up a loved one? And, and clarity around the walk-in entrance as the, or the ambulatory in- entrance as we call it, versus the ambulance entrance, where there could be some facilities where there are two, three, four, five ambulances zipping past you regularly. So. Clarifying that for someone who's in a panic mode and being able to get to the right front door is key and then starts everything else.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree. And just as important for the patients and families to be able to see where they're going, the staff, it's really important for them to be able to see out as well and see kind of what's coming. And I know, you know, the last few emergency department designs we've done, we spent a a long time kind of going around that and really talking through that. Can police and the nursing staff at the triage station, can they see outside that? Can they see the entire waiting room? Can they see out into into the actual parking? lot because there, there have been lots of cases where patients have actually gone down in the parking lot and then somebody doesn't know that they're there. you know And when it comes to VA and federal healthcare facilities, that's really critical. There's a lot of physical security constraints and things that they also incorporate there for that safety. So yeah, all of those are really important for that arrival sequence.
1: The other aspect that comes to my mind is you touched upon police, right? And there's a role within this within the aspect of emergency medicine for, for providers who may not be employees of the hospital, the, the EMS staff, the, the police. If, if there's a surge, you know, there could be federal authorities and local authorities that, that join that event, right? So where are they parking? How are they accessing? The, the department also has, has to be thought through, right? And, and if you just think about the original question around, hey, let's talk about the patient and their first experience as as they get to the ED, I think security more and more these days is playing a big component within that, right? And it's it's hard to know, you know, who is showing up and what's their physical state and what's their mental state, right? So security has become a big part of this equation. Security at the walk-in entrance, security at the ambulance entrance, and then thinking through technology, metal detectors are commonplace these days, right? And how do you create a front door experience that deals with all these kinds of complexities and still humanize it? And it's it's not just a design issue, it's a design plus operational issue.
2: Absolutely. One thing that, that strikes me is that our waiting rooms and sub-waiting, all of those kind of front of house spaces where our patients are arriving, those are really starting to do more and more things. So they're becoming more and more flexible. We saw during COVID that that was a big issue. Where do patients wait and wait safely where they can face themselves out? And with airflow, how can we get all of those waiting rooms fully exhausted so that we're not exposing other patients? A lot of times, actually mentioned in surge capacity, you've set waiting room spaces up to where they could actually be in closed treatment cubicles. Maybe they become fast track or urgent care. So they, they're doing, a whole lot in that space. And I know that traditionally back in the day, going to a no waiting room ED, right? To pulling all that waiting out. And we're kind of seeing a a little bit of a going back, taking a step back because that space is really, really important. It allows a lot of flexibility. It allows the caregivers to have some of that um, space, but it also is very supportive for the patients and their families. It allows them to have a place to go and wait and be together while they're waiting for care and things like
0: that. You mentioned that that waiting room now might have capacity to fit patients if there's the need for that. How might you actually accomplish that? So- One
2: project that we worked on recently, we spent a lot of time talking about their kind of front of of house arrival sequence. You know, how are they getting triaged? How are they getting, how's intake and registration happening? How are are their waiting spaces? And, And they had done some renovations during COVID to actually split their waiting room. And so what their model was, was to have an open waiting space for general population and then to have an enclosed waiting space. And that was more for airborne infection patients and things like that. And so what we've done is we're posing to use that enclosed waiting area and and put some in wall gasses we're looking at doing hidden panels or artwork that kind of conceals that so that it's full, a fully enclosed room. And then during those search, we would bring in mobile partitions or cubicle curtains, something like that uh, to actually create some mini bays there. So that's one of the, the strategies we're looking at.
1: I, I, I think it's a good segue to kind of talk about the ESI levels, emergency severity index and how severe is the case that you're dealing with, right? And, and not just creating a general ED that you'll see everyone, but really trying to understand the case mix that you deal with. So the most emergent patients, which are the level one patients, they typically get seen quicker. And ESI 4s and 5s, you know, they have to wait in a typical ED. But what we are seeing more and more of is there are ways to create super track environments and fast track environments and lower acuity where you can see those lower acuity patients on the side and get them out of the ER as opposed to making them wait. And that's where, you know, quickly assessing a patient or triaging a patient and then bringing them into the ED. So they're not waiting in the waiting room, but rather they are being seen by a care provider and being sent out for labs immediately or they may need an X-ray or whatever it is. So the care treatment has to start early and then there could be sub weights right along the way. So for a patient, I'm not waiting in the waiting room. I'm moving forward in 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 the path of, of progression of care, you know.
2: And I, I think those are all great points, Akshay. And I building on that as we're looking at kind of that flow and and how how we put all these pieces together, looking at kind of that whole system, that bigger picture, you know, we can't just look at the emergency department as a as its own entity. It, it really is part of a system. And so, for example, if you don't have enough inpatient or ICU beds, your ED, no matter what you do, is going to be really backed up. We're seeing a lot of that right now with behavioral health patients. That's something that typically the, the wait times, the boarding times are even longer for behavioral health patients. And we're seeing more and more of that population coming through through the doors. And so I think there's a lot of data that we can draw from to really talk about those sub cohorts, those different population types. What are they needing to actually um, support their care? And so sometimes we'll start to look at the emergency department in terms of zones, right? So those having that fast track sh- zone that Akshay was talking about right off that waiting area. So right when you come in and yes, that's a, a cold or a flu or something like that. Well, we, we can pivot you over here and get you in and out very quickly to where you're not taking up those resources for some of those more acute patients. Trauma, high acuity, right? We always keep them separate. It's a different type of care it's very rapid it's also can be for for family members it can be very jarring very upsetting it's it's there's a lot of things going on it's very high anxiety and so typically we want to kind of keep those patients and family members kind of away from the other zones in the emergency department to to benefit both sides and provide that bereavement support or things in that trauma zone that families may need.
1: I think Hillary, I'm I'm so glad, you know, you talked about two things, right? We we talked about all these zones or pods or acuity levels within the ED. It's easier to kind of incorporate separate tracks for all of these when we are talking about ED that looks at 100,000 patients a year, you know, 120,000 patients a year because they have the volumes, right? And and to kind of address them. But when we scale that down from a level one trauma center to a small community hospital, where the annual visits might barely be 20,000 annual visits a year, right? How do we maintain and retain a level of flexibility? Uh, Because you're not going to be able to create parts of two exam rooms each necessarily. So that, that idea and aspect of flexibility and being able to Pivot and care for different patient types is, is, is crucial. And I don't think we have lightning in a bottle. There's no easy answer to this, right? But, but I think there are opportunities to explore that with your clinical care team and develop a solution that is appropriate for that client or that campus as we understand these best practices.
2: And, you know, speaking of that, Akshay, in order to support those staff, right, I think that that's something that's becoming more and more and more important because we don't have as many caregivers out there. Is a provider shortage. That's not something that, you know, all the numbers and the trends, it, we're, we're not quite catching up to where we need to be. And we're going to have to rely more and more on how far we can stretch staff licenses, things like that, and stretch our staff. And when we think about staff, staff are people, staff are Humans. Same like the patients, same like the family members, they're humans. And just at our very basic level, we all have certain needs that need to be met. We need to have space to kind of decompress in those moments that are super stressful. So Same kind of things that we're talking about providing for that patient care support, about calming environment, looking at lighting. Can we create active spaces that are very bright, but also quiet, dim spaces where someone can go and reflect and kind of regroup? I think that's something that is more and more critical. Having respite spaces throughout. Can staff get to an outside area? They don't get very long breaks. And so when you have, especially when things are going at full capacity in the emergency department... A lot of times it's hard to even get down to the staff lounge, let alone go outside and just sit outside for a few minutes. And that has a a tremendous impact on the physical and emotional and mental well-being of the staff, which then directly impacts how they're providing care to the patients.
1: I'm reminded of a survey that I looked at that was published in the American College of Emergency Physicians official newsletter and and this survey you know kind of looked at optimizing the emergency department workplace to promote wellness and really thinking about supporting the for staff wellness and the number one thing right the number one thing that was listed by the staff is improving and providing comfortable and efficient workplace so it's it's hard to think about all the progress we've made and our emergency staff are still talking about, hey, can I get a comfortable and efficient workplace to work at? And and it doesn't come in one sh- shape and size. I think choice is a big aspect of it. Some providers need to sit down for a while, you know, and do the job that they are required to do. Other providers really need to be on their feet, you know, as they are able to quickly complete a task at a computer, at a desk or whatever it is, you know, and then get back to seeing a patient, right? so providing comfortable and efficient workspaces for those care providers. And the role of technology is going to be key for us moving forward. Then add to that the layer of how do we ease their experience? Because let's let's get real, right? We are bound to fail every now and then, right? We are not going to see positive outcomes on every single patient all the time. Yeah, we're going to strive towards it, right? But when we do have a situation where we are failing, How do we fail up and not fail down? How do we ensure that the staff are cared for and get the emotional support that they need? How do they snap out of the difficult situation that they've encountered, right? And the physical space and the built space has a small component to play within this, right? So if a staff needs to shed a tear after a particular clinical encounter, Where does that staff go? The staff cannot shed the tear in front of a family. So being able to think about simple design intervention that allow the staff to Take a minute off stage without actually stepping away completely from from the unit. And I, I'm gonna push you even
2: further on that, Akshay, and I'm gonna bring in the fact that sometimes it's not just staff you were mentioning earlier that there are mm-hmm. other groups that sometimes come into the facilities. And I'm gonna throw first responders out there. Every patient that comes in through that ambulance entry or you know, Sally Port or whatever. Whoever's coming in that there has to be a handoff. And so at some point you have a patient and this patient, if it's a, if it is a mental health person or somebody has comorbidity, there could be substance abuse issues there could be, there's a whole bunch of different variables that could be walking through that door. And you really don't know most of the time when, you know, what. What is coming? You don't get that much advance notice, and so those first responders—if it's a police officer or, and more likely, more times than not, it's an um, a paramedic—when they're coming in and and transferring those patients, there has to be that handoff space, which means that if it's a patient that is not quite stable, or you know, they may take them directly into the to the trauma room. If it's a behavioral health patient, they may have to have their deal escalation first. So that's not a safe point for the patient and it's not a safe point for the providers either or the paramedics. So how does that handoff occur? How does that conversation occur where they're downloading that information? You know, sometimes we'll do holding areas that are considered safe that could be shared with like that decontam space. But is that a place that we could create a small decompression area for somebody who is agitated, who might need to be stabilized and allow that really necessary conversation to happen between those first responders and the staff that you get so much information of uh, right there. A lot of times we also will see lounges and things like that to actually support those additional caregivers because they need to have that decompression space again and be able to get back out and do their job as fast as possible so that they're getting back out into the communities to get to more patients.
0: And while we're on the subject of prioritizing staff comfort in the design, I'm also thinking about the night shift. How might the design support these types of workers? I'm happy to offer up an
2: example of it it wasn't an emergency department. It was actually in a NICU project that we've done down in Florida. But corridor lighting is one thing. Can staff control the corridor lighting? That's a that's a big deal. Can they bring it down from normal general illumination and bring it the lighting level low when they need to? Also, at that project, we did blue lights at the caregiver station and the blue light helps keep them awake. So in their charting spaces, things like that, we use that to help with that circadian rhythm. Same thing as we use amber patient lights for reading lights or, or low level lighting in the patient room so that it's not affecting the patient's sleep. So we have some some tools like that. There's also a lot of different technologies out there now that can actually change
1: the settings of the lighting that follows
2: the circadian rhythm path to actually help support that.
1: I look at this question and I'm gonna think low-tech over here. I'm gonna think really low-tech. Because some of our answers can be really low-tech sometimes, right? How often do we design emergency departments where there are windows to those exam rooms, right? And can we get borrowed light from those exam rooms into the 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 care team stations, et cetera? Right. And we've recently completed some projects where we we introduced windows in Exam rooms on one particular project, you know, the post-occupancy evaluation showed terrific response for those patients, you know, and 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 they appreciated that. But but really funny enough, we got feedback from the care providers that we appreciate the borrowed light, right? There was another ER that we worked on uh in, in the northeast where there were windows introduced in behavioral health rooms, Hillary. And and through a a detailed post-occupancy evaluation and looking at clinical data. This project, by the way, won a Center for Health Design Touchstone Award. But the data suggested by just having a window in the room, the behavioral health patient actually needed less medication compared to the control unit, which was their previous unit, right? So daylight has a big role to play. And wherever we can introduce it, we should we should try to introduce it. A client that I was working for once asked, you know, hey, how many of the architects here in this room have ever been in an ER even for three or four hours in the middle of a night? And at a large national conference where there were three, four hundred people in the room, there were probably five hands that, you know, said, hey, I've actually been in an ER in the the night. Right. So it's it's a question that we need to ask ourselves as a design community. Hey, have we actually spent time in the ER if you're designing an ER? Have we actually spent time in an OR if I'm if I'm designing an OR to be able to understand the nuances because not everything is said all the time. And thinking through that lens and, and spending time in the ER at night, you know, made me realize that some other things that we take for granted, the location of staff toilets, the location of clean supply rooms, the location of where equipment is stored, the location of soil utility rooms. They matter and they matter a little differently during the day hours when you have a lot of people on the unit, and they matter differently at night hours where there are even fewer people on. So it's being thoughtful about, you know, sometimes the mundane, you know, to be able to get it right for for the care provider.
0: Yeah. And through this conversation, we've talked in depth about the patient experience, staff support, and I'm curious how the design might also support the families of
1: patients. There are times when we have to very cautiously. Think about bereavement rooms in, in large trauma facilities, you know, or if you have a death within your ER, and how do you communicate that to a family member in the most humane fashion, right? And and there are different flavors within there, you know. We've we've designed bereavement rooms where you can actually pull in the the patient's body and the family members, you know, and let them spend some time with each other, and that's a whole different experience, but quite common in large academic medical centers and level one trauma centers, etc. There are times when you design bereavement slash consult rooms where a physician can meet with a family member and discuss something crucial or important or things that have gone right or gone wrong you know if they're not able to do that in an exam room and then say hey now let me walk you back to see your family member and let's let's talk to that that family member right but being able to allow for those spaces within the the emergency department are key and it's not just to meet codes and standards right it's not just hey the code needs one room so we are providing one room it's really understanding are you designing and who you are designing it for and if there's need for exceeding the code requirements you know i mean codes are only the bare minimum so there are times when you have to exceed the code requirement and really think about best practice and, and its applicability to that particular hospital
2: Absolutely and there are times like if I'm if my loved one is a trauma patient and I ride the ambulance in is there a place for me because I can't go in there with the patient in the trauma room they may have you step outside so where do I go? Because that that can be extremely stressful for someone. I mean, think of it if it's your child, if you're being separated from your child, if you're being separated from your husband or wife or partner, there's a lot of emotion there. And so sometimes having those little sweets, it, it could be used for bereavement, it could be used for consult it. You know, we sometimes we provide a bathroom because if you're crying, can you have a place to just go step in and blow your nose or whatever you know you need to do? Sometimes in those behavioral health situations or in the sexual trauma cases, like there may be somebody with them that it's not safe. And so there are those instances too. And so creating those spaces to be flexible and adaptable and kind of to to meet those different needs, I think is, is really important and how we are able to incorporate those beyond what the code requires that help to serve some of those human needs. One thing that I think is really cool, a lot of the VA hospitals, sometimes they'll use those bereavement rooms and they'll be located in a, in a way that they actually use that for their entire hospital Bereavement. So when a veteran passes, they actually will drape a veteran with a flag and they do an escort to that room and then that's where their family can come and meet them. And that's, that's even an, another use outside the emergency department. So really looking at, at that adaptability and, and how we can meet those human needs.
0: Throughout this conversation, it's been really clear that emergency departments are doing a lot in the space that they have. They're supporting the several different types of um, patients, whether that's a behavioral health patient, patients coming in with different acuity levels, as well as supporting staff, EMTs, police officers and patients' families. So thank you both for diving into all these different complexities that are present in the emergency department. And I want to thank you both so much for joining me today, Akshay and Hillary. And thank you, everybody who tuned in to listen today.